still, and I shall go to dwell on Zion's hill. Someday I'll hear the angels singing beyond the shadow of the singing home sweet home someday beyond the reach of mortal ken someday god only knows just where and when the wheels of mortal life shall all stand still and i shall blessing. Thank you so much for that. Well, I've got two messages in my Bible. I reckon I'll just preach them both. <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. Let's find the book of 1 Kings chapter 13. 1 Kings chapter 13. I thought about preaching a hill to die on. but I'm not going to preach that this morning. You'll have to invite me into your church for a meeting to hear that one. 1 Kings chapter 13. My name is Paul Crow. I've been in full-time evangelism now for over 20 years. I got to figuring out, Brother Dwight, I preached my first extended meeting 28 years ago. 28 years and two weeks, I think it was. 28 years ago. I was 17 years old. Everybody told me, whatever you do, don't let anybody know how old you are or aren't. And so I did. I just followed their instructions. Nobody knew until the week was over. Told them at the end of the week, I'm 17 years old. No, you're not. Tall people can get away with that. It's a fact. If you're short, they believe that you're younger than you really are. But uh, <laughs> tall people, people just assume he's tall. He must know things. He must uh, be intelligent. He must, you know, that's just the assumption that's made. And so that's, that's what got me through that week. And uh, anyway, 
1 Kings chapter 13. I, I envy a man. I, in 2020, Brother Dwight and I were in a meeting together, and we received, we received news that a, a dear friend of ours had stepped from this life into the next. Bill Abbott was 52 years old, if I recall correctly. He had been in evangelism for many years, and he was working in a camp. He was the director of this camp, and um, as I understand the story, it was an afternoon. His staff was cleaning up in between weeks of camp, and he said, you know, I'm just going just gonna to ease over here to the house. I'm going to lie down for a little bit in the afternoon for a little bit of a nap, and he did so, and he woke up in the arms of the Lord Jesus. His widow is a member of our church in North Mississippi. The last two years have been very difficult for her. His daughters, he has two married sons. His, his two daughters are around from time to time. It's difficult on them. And while we think about ministering to those who remain, there is one aspect of Bill Abbott's life that causes me to envy him somewhat. And it's this, he finished faithful. He finished faithful. Died with his boots on. He was doing the work of the Lord. There was no, there was no compromise. There was no blot of compromise on his testimony. I envy that. Because very honestly, I feel the draw of temptation to compromise from time to time. 2008, I published a book on personal separation, and uh, the Lord has used it in many ways, but there are many people who come to me and now, and they say, Brother Paul, are there, anything that, are there any things that you wrote back in 2008 that you wish you could change today? Interesting, isn't it? Interesting, in a context of a book on personal separation, are there things, Brother Mike, that, that that you, that you wrote back then that you wish you could undo, you wish you could unwrite them today? It's a great question. My, the answer to my question is no, no. I, I believed it was right back then, and all these years later, I believe it was right now. There are a couple chapters I would add, but nothing that I would change. And we're looking at the story of a man in 1 Kings chapter 13 that, man, I wish the sun could have set on his ministry earlier than it did. Because if the sun could have set on his ministry earlier than it actually did, maybe he would not have made these awful compromises. I'm going to preach you a message this morning that I've entitled, The Crises, plural, of Compromise. Because I believe there are three in this passage of Scripture. Let's look at the text. Let's see what it is. It's a story with which you're familiar, but I'm not going to apologize for reading the Scripture this morning. It may be the best thing that happens in this message, all right? So let's look at verse 1. And behold, there came a man, out of God, a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. And he, the man of God, he cried against the altar in the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, Behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name. And upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places 
that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. Brother Tom, that's some preaching there. They're fixing to offer the bones of men on this altar. What? What? That's an amazing, that's an amazing message. Verse 3, he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord hath spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. And it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand from the altar, saying, Lay hold on him. And his hand, Jeroboam's hand, which he put forth against him, dried up, so that he could not pull it in again to him. The altar also was rent, just like the man of God said it would. The altar also was rent, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king answered and said unto the man of God, Entreat now the face of the Lord thy God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored me again. And the man of God besought the Lord, and the king's hand was restored him again, and became as it was before. And the king said unto the man of God, Come home with me, and refresh thyself, and I will give thee a reward. And the man of God said unto the king, If thou wilt give me half thine house, I will not go in with thee, neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so it was charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread nor drink water, nor turn again by the way that thou camest. So he went another way, and returned not by the way that he came to Bethel. Now would to God we could close the story right there. I mean, that'd be pretty exciting. But I want to look at the rest of the story this morning. Father, thank you for this opportunity. Bless the reading and preaching of your word. Help me to be a help and encouragement and a challenge, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in homiletics class, I was taught this. The words of the preacher. I think, I think our professor may have plagiarized this from somewhere. The words of the preacher are as goads and as nails fastened with the masters of assembly. And... We were taught that sometimes a message is, is used to inflict pain, to redirect astray. That's a goad. That animal is bigger than you are, stronger than you are, and he wants to go this way. You want him to go this way. He starts going off this way. You use that goad, and it becomes very persuasive. Sometimes a message is that way. Sometimes a message is as a nail. What does a nail do? A nail takes two objects that are already in place, but they're not going to stay in place. They're going to come out of place unless you put a nail in them. So I don't know if this message is supposed to be a goat or a nail this morning, but I just, want to, I just want to talk to you about it because I believe one of the saddest things that I have seen in my 20 years of full-time evangelism is people that used to take a right stand, people that used to be doing a great job for God, and today they're not doing it. That hurts me. And the more, the, you know, I suppose there was a day in my life when I was really impressed by someone's preaching ability. Maybe I was impressed by their ability to study. Maybe I was in, impressed by their ability to present a message from the Word of God. That doesn't impress me so much today like it used to. Rather, I want to see an evidence of someone that has started believing this way, and here years later, they still continue to believe this way. 
Because if the Word of God is unchangeable, and I believe that it is, then there ought to be some aspects of your life and mine that are unchangeable as well. If we're serving the God of heaven, if this Bible truly is our standard by which we measure everything in life. So here's a man that had, had a great start to his ministry. I mean, boy, if this guy had done anything like that today, can you imagine going into the governor's office in Denver or mansion or whatever they call it in Denver? Uh, in West Virginia, it's a, it's a mobile home, but I don't know what it is in Colorado. At any rate, can you imagine a guy going up there and saying the kinds of things that this fella did? Here this man is involved in a religious exercise. Now we know, you and I know, it is a pagan religious exercise. We know that uh, Jeroboam said, you know what, everybody's going to go back down to Jerusalem, which is where God had chosen to put his name. Everybody's going to go back down there. I don't want that to happen. So in order to maintain my power, I'm going to come up with a religious counterfeit. I'm going to tell you something. I see so many parallels between Jeroboam's counterfeit and a lot of what goes under the name of American Christianity today. It was a religion that did not require as much commitment. Does that sound familiar? It was a religion that was based upon convenience. Does that sound familiar? There's a church in our county, in uh, DeSoto County, Mississippi, one of the largest and most populated areas in the state of Mississippi, which is not saying much. But uh, it, it, nevertheless, they have multiple campuses to their church. You have churches that you, have know, that, that you know of like that. They have multiple campuses, and uh, you know you can if 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 Sunday doesn't work out for you, if uh, if it doesn't work out to make the Lord's Day a priority in your life, well, that's not a problem. You can go on Saturday. That way, you can catch all the football games and live for yourself on the Lord's Day. I still believe in the Lord's Day, by the way. I still believe in celebrating every week the day that Jesus rose again from the dead. I still believe in that. But we've got people that are, uh, that are or they're, they're pressing in, they're trying, they have pulled people, I'm looking at pastors, these kind of churches have pulled people away from your church and taken them to their church. That's exactly what Jeroboam was doing. He was trying to, he was trying to counterfeit the religion of Almighty God. And he was trying to say, you know, here, let's, uh, let's make this a little more convenient. Don't have to go all the way to Jerusalem like God said in the law. You don't have to, you don't have to, and, and you can, we can, uh, we can take the standards of the holy God of heaven for a priest, and we're just going to forget about those. We're going to make the basest of men priests in our new religion. We could say a lot about that. I was taught when I was in school, men, we who are in the ministry must, must learn to police ourselves according to the dictates of the word of God. We had better make sure that we are qualified, and the Bible sets the standard very high for you and for me. But I see a lot of parallels between what this man was preaching against and what you and I are dealing with today. And so the Bible says he comes in. We've read the story. It's just a powerful story. But after verse 10 in the text, we see three specific crises in his life. And they led to the ultimate destruction of this man and his ministry. None of us here knows his name. God doesn't even give us his name. But I want us to notice these crises. I want you to notice that what the Bible says beginning with verse 11. The Bible says, Now there dwelt an old prophet in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel, the words which he had spoken unto the king. Them they told also to their father. And their father said unto them, What way went he? For his sons had seen what way the man of God went, which came from Judah. And he said unto his sons, Saddle me the ass. 
So they saddled him the ass, and he rode thereon, and went after the man of God. Now, I want you to notice verse 14 very carefully. And found him sitting under an oak. And he said unto him, Art thou the man of God that camest from Judah? And he said, I am. Now, let's just think about what God has told this prophet. And let's just, let's just kind of digest it. God told him, I want you to go and prophesy against Jeroboam. Now, understand at this time, Jeroboam is going to end up being the more powerful kingdom for a while. They have ten tribes. Judah has two tribes. Their armies are bigger. Their income is bigger. Their, uh, their, their, their uh, farms are bigger. Everything is bigger in the northern kingdom. And, uh, and it seems like they have the power, and yet God says, I want you to go up to Jeroboam. I want you to prophesy against him, and then I want you to come back, but I don't want you to eat or drink water. Now, I've never been to the Holy Land, but I have been to Arizona. Okay? It's hard to go a day without water in Arizona. I've never been to the Holy Land, but I expect uh, if, if I, from Mississippi, went over to the Holy Land, I'd probably be craving some water. I expect that I would be doing that. The Bible says you're supposed to go and you're supposed to come back a different way. Now, I don't know how you all travel, but I make it a habit to travel the easiest way I possibly can. If there's an easy route that I can get over the mountains, uh, I'm going to tell you something. Pull on that trailer, I'm going to find it. And that's the route I'm going to take. And guess what? When I come back, I'm going to take the easiest route again. Several years ago, I was, preaching in, uh, I was preaching in Sheridan, Wyoming, and I had to go to Cody, Wyoming, and someone said, I'll tell you what you ought to do. I work for the Wyoming Department of Roads and uh, whatever they call themselves. Uh, the, uh, I, I can't remember all them state agencies that changed it in all 50 states. But uh, he said, I'll tell you the road you ought to take. You ought to take U.S. Highway 14A. What do I know? He works for the state of Wyoming. He must know. I'm going to tell you something. I pulled my trailer. That's over the Bighorn Mountains. It tops out around 12,000 feet, okay? Now, I know, I know, 12,000 feet in Colorado is a drop in the bucket, okay? Y'all, well, we got 14,000 foot peaks in Colorado. But I know that. Brother Beal, I was in Alaska, and I was, uh, I was looking at this mountain they call Denali today, and uh, it happens to be the tallest mountain in North America. They say, you see those little bitty tiny peaks over here? He said, yeah. I said, yeah, I do see those. He said, the smallest one there tops anything you find in the lower 48. So there, Colorado. There we go. Anyway, uh, I, it, but at 12,000 feet, if you're pulling the trailer, it's a big deal. We got up to the top, and I looked down, and that road did this right here. I wanted to grab that Wyoming employee and kill him. I did. We got, we, we were going down this road, and uh. I've got it in the highest gear possible. I have to speak by sign language to my wife. She's right next to me in the seat, you know. She's praying, and her lips are moving, but I can't hear any sound over the motor. We're coming down that way. I mean, it was, it's hairy. It's crazy. And then a couple from Utah decided, uh, well, uh, I don't know. I don't like being behind this per people I can't see. Well, we had slowed down because there was a herd of cattle. It's open range there. The herd of cattle was in front of my vehicle, Brother Finley. We had slowed down to about five miles an hour. This couple from Utah decided, you know what? I'm sick of being in front of them. They probably don't know how to drive anyway. They zipped around me. I now had less 
room to stop for the herd of cattle. And I'm going to tell you what, when we finally got down on the other side of the bighorns, I thought, I am never taking that route again. Because we tend to take the easiest route. I have no, no reason to believe this fellow didn't do the same thing. But God told him, you don't eat, you don't drink, and you go back a different way. Now, I don't understand that. The Bible doesn't give us an explanation why, but I do know this. If you're going to obey what God said, it's probably not your best option to be sitting under an oak. If you're going to go all that time without water, it's, it's probably a, your best idea not to be sitting under an oak. But that's what he was doing. Now, I want you to think about this. This is a crisis of activity. What do I mean by that? God told him, you're supposed to go here, you're supposed to do this, and then you're supposed to come back. God, God laid out a plan for him, but sitting under an oak tree is not conducive to fulfilling that plan. Can I tell you something? We are living in a day where people are going into compromise because there's a compromise of activity. There are certain things that you just ought to be doing as a minister of the Word of God, and the moment you stop doing those, you are going to be headed toward a life of compromise and a life of, uh, of, of going off, off the rails and going into the wrong uh, philosophies and all that. Listen. If you don't have a daily time that you spend with the Word of God and with the Lord in prayer, then that's a crisis of activity. I mean, it's time to hit an old-fashioned altar. It's time to build an altar out in the prairie somewhere. It's time to say, dear God, I've been too long allowing the academics of sermon preparation to replace the reality of spending time with the Lord. I mean, that happens. It happens, and when that begins to happen in your ministry, when it begins to happen in my ministry, it's a crisis, my friend. It's time to sound the alarm and understand that by sitting under an oak, this man of God could never have accomplished what God wanted him to accomplish. We've got people all over. Uh, listen, I, I, I have so, I've seen so many friends, People that I look forward to going through life with and going through ministry with, they used to be, they used to believe what we believed. But now they're off in something crazy. And I think to myself, how does that happen? Well, with this fellow, it happened by a crisis of activity. Can I tell you something? The moment you and I no longer place a premium on giving the gospel to people, that's a crisis. It's a crisis. You know what begins to happen to your heart when you stop telling the old, old story? Your heart gets cold. Maybe you can't sense it at first. Maybe you don't know exactly what's going on, but man, your heart begins to get cold. It begins to get cold to the things of God. There's something about finding someone that knows, doesn't know Christ as Savior and going to him and say, Hey, let me tell you how you can be reconciled, as we heard earlier today. Let me hear you tell you how you can be reconciled to a holy God. It does something for your heart, my friend. What You say, well, Brother Paul, I don't know. They don't seem to pay any attention. I know a whole lot of people don't seem to pay attention. But let me tell you, the moment you stop giving out the gospel, it's a crisis of activity. There's people that are into all kinds of crazy philosophies today because they were not in the habit of having their heart warmed by giving the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about a fella whose ministry was wrecked because he wasn't doing some things that would have helped him to obey a holy God. But that's what he's doing. We find him sitting under an oak. I don't know how long he planned to sit under that oak without water. 
but you can't sit under the oak. I mean, if it had been me, I'd have gotten back as quick as I could because I'd have been thirsty. God said I'm not supposed to drink water here, but there's a crisis of activity. Can I tell you, in so many of our churches that I see, there's a crisis of activity. Pastor Monday, I preach to people, and I, I am fully convinced they cannot remember the last time they endeavored to give the gospel to somebody. Hold on. I preach to pastors. I'm afraid some of them can't remember the last time they gave the gospel to somebody. Can I tell you something, men? No wonder there are people going into compromise if we're not doing some of the most basic things that God has told us to do. When I forsake the place of prayer, it's a crisis. It's a crisis. When I forsake the, and I, I've been guilty of that. When I forsake the place of prayer, it's a crisis. Where does it lead? It leads to rationalization, and rationalization leads to all kinds of all kinds of errors that we could multiply today. We could talk about them, but here is a man that God told him, listen, I've got a task for you, I've got a job for you to do, and I want you to not stop until it's done. And he just decides, well, I, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna sit under an oak tree for a while. It's a crisis of activity. Let me give you another crisis. The Bible says in verse 14. Verse 15, excuse me, then he, now this is the old prophet, then he came unto him and said unto him, excuse me, then he said unto him, come home with me and eat bread. Number one, there's a crisis of activity here. There's a man of God that's been told, don't just give the message and then get back home. Don't eat, don't drink. What is he doing? Rather than staying that course, he's, he's found sitting under an oak, a crisis of activity. Number two, there's a crisis of association here. What's going on? Well, the Bible said you are to, you are to deliver the message and then you're to go back home. But here is a man that comes and offers him an opportunity to sin. What does he say? Well, verse 15, he says, come home with me and eat bread. Now, thank the Lord, he gives a little bit of a, a good answer, I suppose. Verse 16, he said, I may not return with thee, nor go in with thee, neither will I eat bread, nor drink water with thee in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, thou shalt eat no bread, nor drink water there, nor turn again by the way that thou camest. Now, there is there there are... There are not there are things that we say, and then there's just the way that we say it, and both have a means of communicating. So the words that he said are kind of the same as what we read in the beginning, but it seems like when he was talking to Jeroboam, it seems like the veins were popping out of his neck maybe a little bit. Maybe there's a little spit coming out of his mouth. He said, you can give me your house full of silver and gold. You can give me half of your house. I may not go in and eat and drink with you, for so it was charged me by the word of the Lord. It just seems like there's a little more, a little more uh, passion and a little more fire when he speaks to Jeroboam. But now another fellow comes along and he says, no, I, I, I can't go because it was not charged me. It was just spoken, I guess the Lord just said to me. That, uh, that I can't eat bread or drink water in this place. It's amazing to me the power of someone that comes along and wants to be our friend. 
There's power in that. There's power in that. We have a day today where our friends are often virtual. What does that mean? Well, from a ministry standpoint, I'm not going to rail on social media, although I'm sorely tempted to do so. But from a ministerial standpoint, there are people that place themselves under the influence of people they have never met before. And they allow this person in a far distant place, which we just heard earlier, you can't compare your ministry to that person in the distant place. And they allow that person in that distant place to say things and do things that influence what they're doing in their sphere of influence. And you've never met him. He's never ministered in your locale. He doesn't even know what the high plains look like. But we are living in a day where there's a crisis of association. Brother Beal, I don't know how to combat the number of young men who are going off the rails because someone pretended to befriend them online. I don't know how to combat that. But it's real. What do we have? It's nothing new. Here's a fella that claims to be a prophet of God. Indeed, he was a prophet of God. There are all kinds of unanswered questions that I have about this text. You could come to me and you could ask me, what was the motivation of this old prophet? I don't begin to know. It doesn't make sense to me, Brother Cutshaw. Why anybody would do the things that this fella did and, uh, and result in the death of this prophet, I don't understand why they would do that, but they are doing it. Can I tell you, I don't understand the motivation of people today that are going into good ministries and wrecking them and turning them inside out and destroying them and splitting churches and hurting the cause of Jesus Christ. There's a dear friend of mine, dear friend of mine, I, I called him recently and found out his, uh, his church had been infiltrated by someone who claims to be an independent Baptist, has followers on YouTube all over and now these people infiltrated his church, split his church down the middle and he's out on a rail. I'm going to tell you that's ungodly. But it's a crisis of association. Your friends will impact your future. And we love to preach that to young people. We love to preach that to teenagers. I mean, if you've ever been a youth pastor, you told your 16-year-olds in your youth group that all the time. And you should have. You were right to do so. But can I tell you something? That truth doesn't end once you turn 18. It doesn't end. It keeps on going. Your friends will still impact your future. And here's a man. Listen, had he never been in the crisis of activity, maybe he never would have heard the words of the man of God. But the, the reality is both are present in this story. Both led to the destruction of this man of God. And just as it happened in the story in the Old Testament many thousands of years ago, it's happening today. A crisis of association. One of the most important lessons that we can learn from the Old Testament comes from the life of a man by the name of Rehoboam. We remember the story, don't we? Rehoboam had grown up to privilege. His father was the wealthiest man probably who had ever lived. And yet his father was also had some terrible problems as well, moral problems and all kinds of things. I mean, a thousand women, the Bible says, 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines. Uh, that's a disaster. That's a disaster. And so this man, this man Rehoboam had grown up in all of that, and now he's been, it's, it's come time to make him king. And listen to me, listen to me. His future 
would be completely determined by the counselors to whom he gave heed. Can I tell you something? You better be careful who you allow to counsel you. You better be careful. There's a crisis of association in this, pastor, in this passage of Scripture. Here was a man that had been an old prophet. I mean, on paper, he looked good. Uh, he'd been used of God in the past. Uh, on, on paper, it looked like a great association, but it wasn't a good association. Why? Because it was pulling the man of God from the will of God that had been revealed to him for his life. That's why it wasn't good. Well, the Bible goes on. It says this. The Bible says, in verse 16, uh, ver, ver, let's go to verse 18, excuse me. The verse 18, he, now this is the young prophet, or the old prophet again, I'm sorry. He said unto him, I am a prophet also as thou art. And an angel spake unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with thee into thine house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied unto him. I, I don't know that I will ever know the reason why. Why, if you were a man of God, would you come to this other fella and just tell him an out-and-out out lie? I don't understand. What would motivate a person to do that? Somebody has suggested maybe he was jealous that God spoke by this young man and didn't give him the word of God. I don't know any of that. The Bible does not say. I don't understand the motivation, but I do know this. I've seen the same dynamic at work. So first of all, here is a man, there is a crisis in his life, a crisis of activity. God said, don't eat, don't drink, God, deliver the message, go, be, go back a different way. And so, instead of doing that, he decides, I'm just going to take a break, I'm going to sit under an oak. Maybe there's nothing inher inherently wrong with sitting under an oak. But I say it's a crisis of activity because he should have been more busy doing what needed to be done. I say to you also there's a crisis of association, but I say to you there's a third crisis here, and it's the worst and most grievous of all. Because as the man of God, this old prophet, opens his mouth in verse 18, he presents a crisis of authority. Notice, he said unto him, I am a prophet also as thou art. So far we're okay. But now watch, here comes the crisis of authority. You see it? And an angel spake unto me by the word of the Lord. Now, let's just, let's just review who spoke unto this man. Well, it was God. The Bible says, he cried against the altar in the word of the Lord, verse 2. This man came at God's specific indication. I don't know how God spoke to him. The Bible doesn't tell us, but I do know it was pretty, it was pretty, pretty plain. God didn't give him some ambiguous message. There was a crisis of authority here where at one time the man said, the Bible is the only thing that we're going to listen to. The, the word of God is the only thing that I will heed. Now along comes this prophet and he says, I'm going to tell you, I've got a different, a different authority for you. It wasn't God that spoke to me, but it was an angel of God. No, it wasn't. And this angel of God said to me in the word of the Lord, no, 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 none of it really happened. But what he's doing, he's presenting him another crisis. It's a crisis of authority. I just want to tell you something. We're in a crisis of authority in the ministry in the United States of America today. There's not a man in here that has not felt the pressure from the secular culture in which we live trying to tell you that if all you have is a Bible, there are certain counseling situations for which you are not equipped. You felt the pressure. 
And people are going to come along and they're going to say to you, well, if you don't have these academic credentials in psychiatry and psychology and, uh, and yet the list goes on and on, if you do not have those, who are you to think you can help someone in a counseling situation? May I answer that? That the man of God... All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. We understand that, right? All Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We, we understand that. That the man of God may be, what's the word? Perfect. Truly furnished unto all good works. What does that mean? I... There's a lot of debate around this, and I'm not, this is a sticky situation, but I'm going to tell you something. We live in a very medicated culture today. You talk to a pharmacist. Don't talk to a doctor. Talk to a pharmacist and ask them sometime, of all the prescriptions that you fill, how many treat physical ailments versus how many treat mental ailments? You'll be blown away by the answer. We're in an over-medicated society. You know, I don't know everything there is to know about depression. The doctors want to tell me there are times when it is physiological, and perhaps it is. I don't know. But I know this. A lot of the stated symptoms for a lot of the mental problems we have, I find in the Word of God. For example, I can go to Psalm 38, and I can find a whole lot of of, of problems on the list of depression. Depression symptoms? I can find them in Psalm 38. You know what the problem was in Psalm 38? Psalm 38, 18, I will declare mine iniquity. I will be sorry for my sin. I think there's a lot of times when our modern culture wants to cover up guilt of sin with with different things. Now, I'm not saying every time someone is depressed, that means that they're guilty of some kind of iniquity. I'm not trying to say that, but I'm saying this. I still believe that this Bible makes me completely equipped, truly furnished. It makes me perfect. It means complete. I have what I need to do what I have to do. And yet, we are living in a society that is trying to put pressure on you as a pastor. They're trying to put pressure upon me as a preacher, and they're trying to say, no, you need something more than the Word of God. It's a sticky situation. It's a difficult situation. It is an endeavor to get you and me to compromise on the authority that ought to bind together everything that we do. But there are other other attempts to compromise authority. When I was in college, one of the things I learned was it's a sad thing when we preach about the Bible rather than actually preaching the Bible. What does that mean? Well, that means I can string together some things that may seem to make sense, but if I'm not digging into the text, and if I'm not thinking about it, if I'm not meditating on it, and if I'm not allowing it to direct my thoughts as they go along, am I really preaching the Bible? I found this, the more I open the word of God and just let it speak, the more it meets the needs of people's hearts. I'm thankful I have a Bible to preach because honestly, there's a lot of clever men out there and I'm, I'm just really not necessarily in that group. I'm not. But with a Bible, I mean, I can, I can read this I can reread it, I can meditate on it, and I can allow it to shape the very way I communicate to people who come to hear me. 
That's, you want to talk about building confidence, Pastor Dan? That'll build your confidence. I don't have to be the cleverest man. All I have to do is open the book. Listen, I want to tell you today that we're in the midst of compromise. We're in the midst of sad compromise, people that I never thought would go the direction that they have gone, and yet there they are. There they are. It hurts. Pastor Dan and I were, were in a unique class in college. It was a class that was uniquely hit by doctrinal error so that many of the people that we claimed as friends, we all came as, as the same year to college. Many of the people that were our closest friends, they're off the deep end now. Many of them are not in church. Or if they are in church, it doesn't look anything like the Scriptures. And, and I, we, we, we bemoan that. We say their names with sorrow in our hearts. We miss the times that we had together. I mean, there was a man that one time I considered my best friend. Now, I, I, don't, know if he would I don't know if he would take my phone call if I tried to call him. Why? Because somewhere along the line, these same compromises, these same crises led them off the same cliff. I want you to notice what happens when we compromise and we'll be done. I know it's afternoon and uh, some of y'all are just tuned to go to lunch at this time. So let's look at, let's look at what the Bible says. Let's just read the story. We know, we know that uh, he ended up dying. He ended up passing away and the, the lion came and it, uh, it killed, uh, killed the man of God, but it didn't eat his body. And, uh, and so now then you can come to the road and you can see the body of the man of God and there's the lion and there's the ass. But, the, but everyone comes and they say, wow, what's going on? And the, man of, and the, the old prophet says, oh, let's take his body and let's bury it in my sepulcher because everything he said is going to come true. Again, I don't understand the old prophet, but that all, that all happened. But let's look at the results. What happens when we start well, but we end poorly? What happens? Well, the Bible gives us what happened in this instance. Let's direct our attention, if we can, to verse 24. The Bible says, When he was gone, a lion met him by the way and slew him. And his carcass was cast in the way, and the ass stood by it. The lion also stood by the carcass. The first, the first consequence of the compromise was destruction. Destruction. The man died. He died, all because he failed to obey the word of God. There's another consequence. Let's look at it very carefully. Please direct your attention to verse 31. It came to pass after he had buried him, this is the old prophet, after he had buried him, that he spake to his son, saying, When I am dead, bury me in the sepulcher wherein the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. You can disagree with me if you want, but I think there's some discouragement there. I think there's an old man that sees how God has used this fellow. I don't know why the old man is, I, I don't know why he doesn't seem to be serving God. I, I don't understand. I don't, the Bible doesn't give us all those details. But in verse 31, I see a man of God, an old man. Once he was used of God as a, as a prophet, but now he's lied. He's lied and he has tripped this man up. He has ensnared this man. He has caused the destruction of this young prophet. And yet, even though his lies have caused the destruction of this young prophet, he still says, I want you to bury me next to him. I think there's discouragement there. I think there's discouragement there. I will tell you this. Every time you or I hear of somebody that goes off the deep end of compromise, it discourages you and it discourages me. 
There's enough discouragement in this world. I don't want to be the cause of further discouragement. There's another, there's another consequence. It's, it's found here. Notice in verse 32, for the saying which he cried by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. Well, that's good. The word of God is not affected by this man's disobedience. That's good, but now let's, well, let's watch verse 33. After this thing, after what? After the altar broke open, after the man of God pronounced judgment, after Jeroboam's hand was withered, after Jeroboam's hand, hear it, was healed by Almighty God, after this, Jeroboam returned not from his evil way, but made again of the lowest of the people priests of the high places. Whosoever would, he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing became sin unto the house of Jeroboam, even to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. I say to you, the first consequence of his compromise was destruction. The second was discouragement. The third was debauchery. I mean, this man had had his hand healed by the man of God. This man was, he was, he was going to go to his grave maimed. And yet the man of God who had just pronounced this judgment turned around and said, no, I will pray to the God of heaven and the God of heaven will heal your hand. And yet God did it. And somehow, did word get back to Jeroboam about the life of the prophet? I, I don't know. But whatever his justification was, after this thing, he continued on in his wickedness. I don't have to tell you the story. You've read the historical books. You know that in the northern kingdom of Israel, there was not one king who was a worshiper of Jehovah. The best of them. We know this. We know this. We've read it. The best of them departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who, what's the word, made Israel to sin. I think the tendency is to view my ministry as small. It's not important. No one's ever, other than this conference, which is a really fun conference. It's a great conference to be at. But none of the big name conferences, you've never read of Paul Crow and the Sword of the Lord. And maybe you don't read the sword of the Lord, but just just pick your pick your big time. I, you've never read my name there. I have never read your name in those either. And so I think we're probably all together in assuming that uh, you know, in the, in the grand scheme of things, my ministry. I don't know. It doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't seem that great and that influential. But I'm going to guarantee you somebody's watching you. Somebody is using your faithfulness as inspiration to do right. And someone will use your compromise as justification to do wrong. But you know what? It doesn't have to be that way. Thank God for the Bill Abbotts of this world. a year later, I was on my way to preach in a Christian school chapel when I received word that Pastor Jason Walker, 42 years of age, 
died in his sleep. No one ever accused Jason Walker's church of being organized religion. If you know what I mean. There was barely enough organization to keep you, to push the thought from your mind, this whole thing is just about to collapse and go everywhere at once. But Jason Walker loved people, and you know, in the final analysis, he was faithful. He died in the saddle, too. I never will forget his funeral. His funeral, there were people spilling out in the 67th Street of Brooklyn, New York, because they could not fit in the auditorium, nor could they fit in the basement, both of which were full. I miss both of those men. I never thought that in my 40s I would talk about all the people that I went to school with that had died. I thought, I thought maybe by the time I'm 70 I might think of that, maybe in my 60s, but not my 40s. Yet here I am. And both of those men, though, both of those men, they, every one of them had their faults like you do and I do, but I'm grateful that both of them died with no blotch, no compromise, but a faithful testimony. And then if they did, so can you, so can I. If we avoid these crises of compromise, Father, thank you for this opportunity to look into your word. Lord, bless the time. You've blessed already. Father, I almost feel unworthy to preach after these two men before me. Their, their messages were so good and showed such meditation on the Scripture and allowing the Scripture to dictate these things. It was just powerful. But I do thank you for this opportunity, and I pray, Father, that every one of us, none of whom knows how long we have left on this world, but I pray that every one of us will be found faithful. We ask these things in Jesus' name.